this morning, we're going to wrap up our series through the book of Jonah together. Uh, and we're going to work through chapter 4 together this morning. And I've entitled this message, Do You Do Well to Be Angry? Because God asks Jonah that searching question twice in the fourth chapter. And it's a question that, that really serves as the climax of the book of Jonah. Do you do well to be angry uh, is this, this rich theological and very practical question that God asks in order to penetrate Jonah's heart and, and make him examine really the, the absolute foolishness of his thinking and his actions throughout the book and how they are actually rooted in a deficient view of God and the way that God works. And in turn, it serves as a question that will expose our hearts. It's a question that, that should make us consider the view that we have of God and the character of God and the ways of God. As I said last week, Jonah is a book that has many themes. And, and one of them is, is the challenge that we sometimes face as our view of God can be skewed by our own sinfulness. And that theme comes to light very vividly in chapter 4. Ultimately, the issue at hand in this chapter is theologically grounded in the nature of God. And what is at stake in chapter 4 is not whether Jonah or we approve of God's nature, because he doesn't need our approval. Though Jonah goes down that slippery slope of thinking that he has the right to judge God. And we're going to look at that this morning. But what's truly at stake in chapter 4 for every single one of us is whether we will humbly surrender our thoughts, our feelings, our inclinations, and our expectations to what God's true revealed nature is. A nature which will not always line up with what we think he should be and what we think he should do. And the more we have an incorrect view of God, the more we are going to struggle with his ways the way that Jonah did. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray by giving the Lord's prayer, he begins with the word, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And he begins this way to remind the one that's praying that God's nature is altogether different than ours. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, we're making a a statement about who he is, and we're also making a statement about who we are. First, the statement is absolutely glorious, is it not? Because we're starting by addressing him as our Father. Like We get to address the God of the universe, the creator of everything, as Father, as Dad, as Abba, as Jesus calls him. And when we do that, we're declaring, as Paul says, that God has granted us privileges as his adopted sons, as his adopted daughters, as heirs with Jesus Christ. Like We have this complete access to our Father, and as an heir with Jesus Christ, he, he holds nothing back from us. That's absolutely amazing. We should revel in that truth. And at the same time that we declare him father, we're also declaring our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Which reminds us that God is altogether different than us. His nature is altogether different than ours. He is in heaven. He is holy. He is set apart from us. We can just do a trivial search 
of the scriptures and we can see very plainly God's nature is unique from all of his creation. As I was reflecting on God's nature this week, uh, the Lord brought to my mind Daniel chapter 4 verse 34 to 35. It declares his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love that picture of God. His almighty power. And I think Daniel is, is a fitting picture of some of the unique aspects of God's nature because it unwaveringly portrays God in a way that is acutely relevant to our text this morning. Daniel declares, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's a picture of God's almighty sovereignty over his creation. And it is a fundamental part of his nature that Jonah seems to forget in chapter 4. In fact, Jonah not only loses sight of this truth, but but he becomes dangerously close to cosmic treason in chapter 4 as he puts himself in the seat of judgment and declares his verdict over God's actions. It is a dangerous place to find yourself casting judgment on God and his ways. But if we're honest, I think we would probably say we've all done it. We've all been in situations or maybe we've seen things that have happened or maybe we've read things in scripture. The book of Job comes to mind that cause us to question God's character and God's judgment and God's justice. I think it's very safe to make the assumption that there are here this morning, maybe many in this room who have gone through circumstances in your life or seasons where God's character came into question for you. Where you are wrestling with the question of whether God is truly good, whether his ways are truly just. I believe this, this sermon has practical implications for our hearts and our, our faith walks because we've all had and will have differing experiences in life. And, and some of those experiences have and will cause us to question God. It will cause us to question his ways. It will cause us to cry out to him in frustration, in disappointment, and at times maybe even in disbelief. And while all of these are realities of fallible, sinful human beings trusting an almighty God, trying to walk out our faith, trying to figure it out, We have to be aware that our heart's posture towards him does not become one of judgment. Be sure that we do not usurp God's rightful place and dishonor him by thinking that we know better than he does the way that Jonah does. I believe that we can and will wrestle with God in honorable ways all throughout our faith. I think about Abram contesting with God over Sodom and Gomorrah. I think about Moses contesting with God when he said he wasn't going to go into the promised land with the people of Israel. But we have to be careful not to be like Jonah and contest with God in dishonorable ways. And how we wrestle things out with our Father in heaven will largely be impacted by our understanding of his nature. 
And so let's pray. And we'll look at our text and we'll look at this theme further together. Heavenly Father, help us to be a people that understand you. Lord, that know intimately your word and your character described within it. That through our own experiences with you, through our deep relationship with you, we can trust you and know that in all things you are good. Father, we will wrestle and we will struggle at times because we're fallible. We don't see things the way that you do. But Lord, help us always be honorable in our view towards you. May we not cast judgment because we see things differently than you, but understand our rightful place and your rightful place. And Lord, as we go through the text this morning and try to learn from Jonah, help us to do so, Father. Speak to our hearts through the power of your spirit, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Jonah chapter 3, we, we saw uh, that Jonah finally completed his mission. Good job, Jonah. Finally got the mission done. Right? He went to the Ninevites. He called out against their city to be destroyed in 40 days. And we see that the people respond by repenting of their ways. They put on sackcloth and they start fasting. And the king calls for a fast over the entire city. The king says in, in Jonah 3.9, he says, Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent. And turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And we see verse 10 tells us God's response to their repentance. He does indeed relent from the disaster. When God saw what they did, how he turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So by all accounts, except for his own, Jonah's mission to Nineveh was a success. Now, as a preacher, I kind of take offense to Jonah's response. I really do. I got to be honest, because I was thinking about it like, like my hope, okay, my hope every single time that I preach is that there would be a response in our hearts, right? That's the goal, that, that when I preach the word of God, we would respond, that the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would take my exposition of his word and he would give it weight and he would use it to change our hearts to respond to what he desires us to respond to. Or else, really, what's the point? I think about Jonah's mission. I think about the fact that if I ever preach to an entire city and, and the whole city repented, like, I would be on a mountaintop. You could not get me down. I'd be soaring, right? You couldn't get me down from there no matter what happened. But not Jonah. No, Jonah's angry. He's like, this sucks. It worked. I was thinking this past week. This is where my head went, and I'm sharing it with you. I was thinking about when Jonah and Jeremiah meet in heaven. And I was thinking, there's no violence in heaven, but if I was Jeremiah, I would want to clock Jonah off the side of the head. <laughs> like, honestly. I'm like, Jonah preached and literally an entire city of pagans repented. Meanwhile, poor Jeremiah preached for years to Judah. Nobody listened. And he just had to keep preaching the same message over and over. The only result that Jeremiah had was his family abandoned him. They were part of a plot to kill him. 
He was attacked by mobs. He was threatened by the king. He was accused of treason. He wasn't allowed to marry. Right? He, he was alone. He was abandoned. He was living with the knowledge of the horrors that were coming to Judah. And he just kept preaching them and no one listened. Like, I'm sure Jeremiah was like, dude, what's your problem? What's wrong with you? That's what I was reflecting on this week. Because when God relented after Jonah's preaching, we've looked at Jonah's response. And in the previous weeks, we've looked at this. He was so upset. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, here's where I want to pause a little bit and I want to dig in because verse, I want to look at verse 1 and 2. Because in, in, in some English translations, you'll have a reference in that verse to a note at the bottom of your Bibles. Because the English translation really doesn't capture all that well the force of Jonah's emotions and what he was truly thinking in that moment, the way that the Hebrew does. The, the Hebrew is written in this very emphatic, repetitive style that emphasizes Jonah was feeling much more than just anger here. The Hebrew translated literally reveals that Jonah actually viewed God's response of mercy over Nineveh as evil and wrong. And you can actually translate that word as disgusting. So it wasn't just that it displeased him. He saw God's response as evil. And from some of the responses I heard, we feel that like, ooh, yikes. There's a lot to consider there. So let's look at verse two. Out of his anger, it says he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So out of his anger, Jonah reflects on what made him run to Tarshish in the first place. He says, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And so Jonah is possibly looking back to a a back and forth that he had with the Lord when he was still in his country before he fled to Tarshish, or maybe he's, he's reflecting on kind of this internal dialogue that he was having. It's not included in the narrative of the story. But either way, this verse reveals that Jonah's heart condition that caused him to flee to Tarshish goes even deeper than just hating the Ninevites. There was more to it than that. As I said last week, Jonah takes the glorious truths of God's character that are revealed in Scripture that we see first in Exodus 34 to 6 when God meets with Moses and passes before him. Right? God proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These glorious truths are repeated throughout the Old Testament, revealing the beauty of God's character. And yet Jonah views them as negative things. And he uses them against God. Right? As I said last week, he's like, I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from desire. Jonah is throwing these things back in God's face as though they're negative things. And what this reveals about Jonah is that he didn't only hate the Ninevites. 
Jonah couldn't stand God's true character. Jonah was angry that God had turned out to be the exact character that he's revealed to be over and over in Scripture. Our view of God can be skewed by our own sinfulness. And I'll tell you how it usually skews. Our view of God's nature will lean in the direction of our own benefit, our own selfishness, our own pride, or our own view of what's right and what's wrong. Jonah loved God's nature when it meant mercy over his life, but he hated it when it meant mercy over his enemy's life. In our sinfulness, we will always skew to a nature of God that benefits ourselves, that benefits our comfort, what we think is right and wrong in a situation, how we believe that he should work and give us favor. God's nature does not reflect ours, though. And we do well to remember Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? When we struggle with the nature of God like Jonah, what it is ultimately rooted in is pride and self. We endow ourselves with a much loftier position than what God's word grants us. The historic Christian worldview is that God is sovereign. He's eternal. He is the holy creator and being over all things. He created everything and through him all things live and breathe. He is the sole authority who has wisdom to determine what is right and what is wrong. He is good and has a, is the sole determiner of what is good. He is just and the sole determiner of justice. He is right and the sole determiner of right and wrong. Human goodness, justice, rightness is only good insofar as it mirrors what God has determined to be good. So how then do we have the right to judge God the way that Jonah does. It's pride, it's self, it's sin. Again, I'm not condemning wrestling things out with God. I don't want you to misunderstand me. We will wrestle, we will struggle. I'm speaking against the kind of prideful condemnation of God because we think we have the right to judge him. We don't. And God would say in Jonah 4.4, do you do well to be angry? This is who I am. These are my ways. This is how I work. Do you do well to be angry? It rubs on us a little bit. So Jonah's angry about this. But God is merciful. 
And in his abundant mercy, he has patience towards Jonah. And so God puts Jonah in a position to teach him a lesson about his nature and his compassion that will hopefully change Jonah's heart. And that's what we see in the rest of chapter 4, from verse 5 to 11. An interesting note on these last six verses is that they're not in chronological order with the rest of the narrative of Jonah. This is not a continuation of the narrative. It's actually a flashback to an event that happened before verses 1 to 4 of chapter 4. Commentators believe that verse 5 to 11 most likely happened before the end of the 40-day window that God gave the Ninevites to repent and before Jonah knew for certain what would happen to Nineveh. This is the most natural understanding of these verses because if we look back at Jonah 3.10, right, it tells us that God does relent. So we already know that. And we see verse 4, one to, or chapter 4, 1 to 4, we see Jonah's response to that. He hates it. So God's relented. Jonah already knows that and he's angry about it. But then Jonah chapter 4, verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. So this is a flashback. We already know what became of the city. 310 to 44 tells us. And so verse 5 to 11 had to occur before, since he's waiting to see what's going to happen. So most likely, verse 5 to 11 occurred right after Jonah was done preaching. The word says that, that he would have entered Nineveh, okay, from the west side, which is where he would have come from, and he would have gone the three day journey preaching, you know, 40 days, yet Nineveh will be overthrown, and he would have come out of Nineveh on the east side as he walked a straight line from west to east. And as he exited the city on the east, he set up a booth, it says, which is just a a crude shelter in order to remain and watch what would happen. Okay, I've preached destruction on this city. Now I'm going to watch the show. Watch the fireworks. Commentators believe that Jonah's booth would have been a, a very crude structure due to the fact that the landscape was bare around Nineveh. He would have lacked materials to make anything substantial, so it likely didn't have a roof. It likely did not provide him much protection, which is a great opportunity for God to teach him a lesson. And so God, once again, acts on Jonah's behalf in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So again, we see God appointed a plant to give Jonah shade. The same way that God appointed a fish to rescue Jonah at sea. And the plant relieved Jonah's physical discomfort and he was exceedingly glad, it tells us. So again, we we see Jonah loved the undeserved mercy of God when it was over his own life. But while God had appointed the plant to relieve Jonah's discomfort, he also appointed the plant to teach Jonah a lesson. Because verse 7 tells us, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So Jonah had the plant for one day, just long enough to appreciate the shade of it. Just long enough to appreciate that he didn't have to be in the hot sun. And then God once again appointed, God's sovereignty is all over this book. He appointed a worm this time to attack the plant so that it died and Jonah lost his shade. In doing this, God set Jonah up. He's about to learn an important lesson. 
And it depends on how Jonah would respond to the loss of the plant. And of course, Jonah responded exactly as God expected him to respond. Let's read verse 8 to 9. It says, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Oh, he looks foolish. Jonah loses the shade of the plant. And God appoints an exceptionally uncomfortable weather condition for Jonah to endure to the point that he's faint. And Jonah once again says, it's better for me to die than to live. And God confronts Jonah with the same question in verse 4, this time specifically about the plant. Do you do well to be angry about the plant, Jonah? And Jonah steps right into it. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And with that, God can teach him the lesson that he so desperately needs to learn. Verse 10 and 11. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city? in which there are 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Checkmate. The plant was important to Jonah, wasn't it? He delighted in it. And he was angry that it had died. To Jonah, the plant was worthy of life. For the people of Nineveh, No. God contrasts the concern that Jonah shows for the plant, something that he did not work for and something that was only in existence for one full day with God's concern for the city of Nineveh. See, God was doing for Nineveh what Jonah insisted he had the right to do for the plant. The difference is, unlike Jonah, God did labor for the city of Nineveh and every person in it. God gave life and made it grow and had sustained it so that the city had been around so much longer than that plant. And not only that, but there are souls of 120,000 people in that city that are of infinitely more value than the plant. And don't forget the cattle. (laughs) If you're like me, when I read the end of chapter verse 11, I'm like, what? Why does he put cattle? And I kept reading. I'm thinking, why are you you including cattle? It's an odd thing. But I think what God is pointing out to Jonah, this is my interpretation, is the fact that even if the city was just filled with cattle, he would still be right to spare the city. Because cattle is of more value than a plant. It's kind of this mid-range thing between the value of a human and the value of a plant. Cattle's kind of in the middle, so lower middle, lower middle, but it's in the middle, right? So no matter what, God's pointing out to Jonah how wrong his assessment of God's actions are. And not only that, but his assessment of value. And so let's wrap up Jonah with a couple of thoughts on this. I think it's interesting that the last words from Jonah recorded in the book are verse 9. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. 
You know, with it ending this way, it leaves a bit of a cliffhanger for us as to whether Jonah does have a change of heart or not. Does he, does he turn around? Does he understand his foolishness? We don't know, and Scripture doesn't tell us. History doesn't tell us. And so I think with ending it this way in this kind of cliffhanger, with Jonah's heart's issues, heart issues unresolved, I think it leaves tension for us and puts Jonah's heart issues and the question, do you do well to be angry to us, to wrestle with, to examine our own hearts? Do we have a proper view of God's nature? Do we love and trust God's revealed character? Or like Jonah, do we misunderstand God's nature? Have we made a God of our own liking that works according to our favor and our desires and our wants and our inclinations and what we think is right and wrong? Do we believe that we have the right to judge him? Tell you, this is, my, this is what's largely wrong with Jesus' church today. Is there's just too many followers of Christ who think we have the right to judge God. This is why you see so many churches thinking, oh, this idea is antiquated. God could not have meant that. We're going to go this way. It's pride. Jonah thought sparing the Ninevites was exceedingly evil. But he was so very wrong and so very much in opposition to God's true nature. Like, would not the true evil have been to destroy the 120,000 souls when they showed themselves to be repentant when they were given the opportunity? They repented immediately. Jonah's miscalculation should remind you and I that our hearts can be extremely deceptive and extremely wicked. And we can have a backwards view of what's evil and what's good. And it will be skewed in our favor. Someone else is always more sinful than me, right? I am always more worthy of God's mercy and favor than, a, than somebody else. Like, that's actually what we think, if we're honest. Our own self-concern skews the nature of God in our hearts. Jonah was angry enough over the plant which provided him comfort that he wanted to die, but was indifferent to the potential deaths of 120,000 people. As seen with Jonah's reaction to the plant, we too often have an unjustified, disproportionately selfless response to trivial things that affect us. And we're deeply indifferent to things that affect other people. I'm more angry that my air conditioning is broken than that a soul is perishing in hell. How silly. We cannot judge God based on our judgments because it is not... It is us who will be found to be deceived of what is good and what is evil, not God. I want to leave us with this. I think it's so important. Once again, God's compassion in the book of Jonah is on display. While Jonah's compassion is glaringly missing. 
We need to remember, every single one of us, we need to remember God's response to the people of Nineveh. They do not know their right hand from their left. Can you imagine if followers of Christ actually walked around with that kind of mindset? When we come up against someone who opposes us, who has views that we're like, wow, those are so wrong, so evil, so off. Imagine if we had that view. They don't know their right hand from their left. We're not going to judge them. We're going to show concern. We're going to show compassion. We're going to show pity the way that God does. I urge you to try and keep that in your heart at all times. When you come across someone who's maybe coming against you for your faith or saying things or you're seeing something on TV where someone's spewing just absolute evil, we'll have lots of opportunity to judge. <laughs> like, it's pretty easy. But we need to have the compassion of God. They don't know their right hand from their left. They are sheep without a shepherd. That kind of compassion will make us press into them, not run away from them.